is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. Did nearly a quarter million school students simply disappear, vanish? A big new analysis looked into that question and found 152,000 students in California and nearly 90,000 in 20 other states are unaccounted for since the COVID pandemic started. We'll go in-depth into what might have happened to them and if they will ever return to a classroom. And a music legend has passed on. Burt Bacharach has died at the age of 94. He wrote dozens of catchy songs, many of them becoming big hits, made famous by artists like Dionne Warwick. So later in the show, we'll look back at his outstanding career and influence in the music and movie worlds. China's apparent spy balloon may have just been one of many. The Biden administration says China used balloons to spy on a few dozen other countries. We'll go in depth. America's love affair with beer could be fading. Heavens to Betsy. Don't say that. But it's true. New numbers show more people are choosing cocktails. We'll look into this new trend. You mean the ones with the little umbrellas in them? Yeah, or? cocktails, like mixed drinks. And... It's going to be a run on little tiny umbrellas. <laughs> we, uh, we start, though, with the uh, missing school students. Thomas D. is an economist and professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Education and worked on this particular project. Thomas, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So it, it, it sounds like, you know, uh, one of those, uh, you know, HBO horror films or science fiction movies, you know, students, quarter million students disappear, vanish. It was aliens. Yeah, no, it wasn't aliens. But, <laughs> but, but, but what happened to them? No, nothing quite so sci-fi based as that. But rather, I think what's going on here is, you know, we've known for a while there's been a really dramatic decline in public school enrollment. During the pandemic, nationwide public schools at the K through 12 level have lost about 1.2 million students. And in California alone, um, over these first two full school years under the pandemic, public schools have lost over 270,000 students. So then the question that I was trying to engage with my collaborators at the Associated Press and here at Stanford is what can we say about where these kids went? So we looked to the data on population change and on um, increased homeschool and private school enrollment to try to track those aggregate numbers. And California was a really interesting example because clearly a lot of it was due to population change. Roughly nearly 100, there are about 100,000 fewer school-aged children in California right now. And that's due to declining birth rates, as well as just a lot of mobility out of the state or even out of the country. So that explains one chunk. Also, private schooling in California increased by about 10,000 students. And interestingly, homeschooling rose even more to by about 14,000 students. As an aside, that's striking to me because that's through the last school year when schools were back in in with in-person instruction. Many parents stayed with uh, homeschooling. Right. So the, 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 the real story is what's unexplained. That's where we get that 150,000 uh, number because uh, homeschooling increases, private schooling increases. Right. So what, what's, what's the th- then what's the theory on the unexplained? Well, there are at least three possible explanations, and, and they, they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, one is uh, some kids might be truant from school, and I think we definitely need 
uh, state and local efforts to investigate that. Um, some families may be in homeschooling, but they simply haven't registered with the state. And I think what's going on with homeschool kids is something we need to know more about. But the third thing, and we really see some indirect evidence in support of this not, um, throughout the country, is that families may be choosing to simply skip kindergarten. And that's relevant because that's such a developmentally critical uh, time for kids you know, to miss out on a whole year of instruction. Is I was just wondering if part of this, because we saw the great resignation during the pandemic, where a lot of people just to maybe kind of realize, you know, I don't like this job. I don't have to do it. I'm quitting and I'm going to go figure out something else to do with my life. Is is this a similar thing that's happening with some parents? Is that a possibility that they've looked at their schools and they think teachers aren't getting paid enough, the buildings are run down, uh, the kids aren't learning what they should be learning in school, so I'm going to figure out something else? No, I mean, I, I think right now there there's some interesting anecdote about that. I mean, I've heard from some parents who say, you know, I took up homeschooling. It wasn't as hard as I thought it was. I'm seeing my kid grow and develop on a daily basis. And and that kind of phenomenon could explain why the sharp rise in homeschooling is so enduring. But I think we also have to wonder a little bit about the whole child development. How are these kids really developing in terms of social engagement as well as academically? Yeah, I was going to. I, I was going to say when when parents who are doing homeschooling say, "Gee, this isn't as hard as I thought it was going to be." Could it be that maybe it's because they're not doing it the right way? Well, that's certainly a concern, and I think I think this raises some broader issues. You know, for us as a society, what is our obligation to? Uh, the homeschooled kids to, to ensure they're getting a high quality education. I think in these politically divisive times, I could see that being a very touchy topic, but the rise in homeschooling is putting it on the table. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Thomas D., an economist and professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Education. Right now, though, the Biden administration says China's military is probably behind a big aerial spy balloon program that's targeted more than 40 countries says China has developed a vast surveillance program capable of collecting sensitive intelligence. Ian Johnson is a senior fellow for China Studies at the Council on Foreign Affairs. Ian, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. So it, it, it sounds kind of, you know, weird in a way because we're so used to hearing about very sophisticated technology, you know, stealth bombers and uh, artificial intelligence, this and that. It seems odd that a country would have, apparently, a large uh, surveillance program based on balloons, but I guess there's method to the madness. Yeah, other countries, including the United States, have balloons as well. It seems like China's really launched a fleet of them. They can go under the radar, so to speak, or not be detected by radar. They're not something that people are typically looking for, unless I guess you stare up in the sky at it. Um, and, and they can also take clearer photos and sometimes over wider ranges, wider angles than you can get from um, a satellite, which is, you know, zipping around the Earth above the atmosphere. So there are pros and cons to them. Um, but, yeah, they are a fact of, of military life. 
Now, I know the military is uh, currently gathering up some of the equipment that fell into the water. They're taking a look at it, and they're learning things from it. And uh, we are told that they were able to jam any uh, transmissions out from it back to China uh, while they were uh, tracking it. Did they learn from all that that this uh, balloon program is wider than expected, or did we kind of know that before we shot this one down? Yeah, I think we've been piecing it together for the past few years. Um, the Biden administration mentioned that even in the Trump administration, there'd been inklings of this or some flyovers, probably not as dramatic as what had happened this time around, but that we knew that this was going on. And I think we were slowly putting it together. This seems to be a relatively new program the Chinese have been rolling out over the past five years or so. So if everybody's been doing this, we do it to them and they do it to us, and there are all these balloons flying around. Is what went wrong in this case that it was too obvious and too many Americans happened to spot it from the ground and people all over the country, we kept seeing these social media posts with people looking skyward going, oh, look, there's the Chinese spy balloon. <laughs> well, you know, I think the, the problem with the spy balloons is that they do violate country's airspace and so it might be okay over the ocean over the pacific or something like that but when you start traversing a large continental country like the united states um it does obviously you can you can run into trouble and so i think it was a it was a miscalculation on their part i don't know what they had originally intended whether they really wanted to fly over the entire country whether this was meant to be a test i mean they indicated that there was some kind of mistake i can't believe they thought they could have gotten away with it, um, in, you know, indefinitely just flying over the U.S. That seemed to be a little silly. So, but So in other words, yeah. you know, when they claimed that it was a weather balloon that had gone off course, maybe they were half right. It was a spy balloon that went off course. Right. I mean, right. I mean, the weather balloon part was was ridiculous. And I think that wasn't a great answer to give right away when it so obviously wasn't one. And, and the U.S. had been tracking it and they... Um, had had obviously, you know, shouldn't have said that. Um, but I, I think it seems like this couldn't have been their original intention to to fly over the whole, to traverse the United States like that. So what happens now? Does everybody ground their balloons or do they keep blowing up new ones? No, I think some countries will use balloons, but I don't think they're meant to be used in this fashion. I think the bigger issue is what this means for China-U.S. relations. I mean, it just seems that there, it's almost impossible for the two countries to normalize their relations. I mean, formally, we do have normal diplomatic relations with China, but to have some kind of a normal status quo where we can have meetings and talk with them about problems and challenges, um, every time something starts, there's another major hiccup like this. And I don't think this is going to go away. I think it just shows the problems between the two countries. You know, I think it's interesting. Everything old is new again. Uh, I, I believe we used balloons in the Civil War to keep an eye on troop movements and uh, get messages to and from places they needed to be. So uh, this is kind of like uh, going back uh, back to the old way of doing things, right? Except that they yeah, had antennas me... and, uh, and microwave uh, transmitters on this thing. Yeah, no, it was clearly more sophisticated than those balloons in the 19th century, but um, it it just shows that I think countries are always seeking some sort of an edge, especially the two, really the only two true superpowers in the world, the United States and then the rising superpower, China. They're always jousting and trying to find an edge to counter the other one. 
Well, since since everybody apparently was able to see this particular balloon, wouldn't it be better if they sent them over like in the shape of animals or something? Or... <laughs> Animal balloons. <laughs> or, or just you know, imitate the, the Goodyear blimp yeah, or something yeah. like that and say they're just you know, flying to Akron or That Ohio makes me paranoid because, you know, now they're going to have the idea, let's make it look like a Goodyear blimp, and then they won't ever shoot it down. <laughs> That's exactly. devious. I'm, yeah. just, I'm just heading over to the Super Bowl or something like that. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, thank you so much. Ian Johnson, uh, Senior Fellow for China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. No, I mean, you'd look up in the sky if there was like a giant balloon yeah. in the shape of like a well, puppy it never, dog. It never bothered me before, but now I, I think I'm not the only one. I'm a little, a little paranoid now when I see a balloon in the sky. Really? Like, is that a spy balloon? Well, you must be uh, like freaking out at birthday parties. I, I don't go to them anymore. <laughs> Too much. And coming up, Burt Bacharach's work as a songwriter and composer has been heard for decades. You can still hear people humming songs like Walk On By. We'll take a look back at his legendary career following his death at the age of 94. And right now, though, what sounds better to you? A nice ice-cold beer or a smooth apple martini? Wait, what kind of beer? Which beer? I mean, not all beer is the same. It it just says ice cold. Yeah, but ice cold, like, I mean, imported beer or domestic beer or... Probably your basic run-of-the-mill American... Regular beer, like beer, sitting in front of the TV watching football beer. That kind of beer. Yeah. Okay. All right. Or an apple martini. Uh, It's a tough one. I'll let you work that out. In the meantime, I'm going to tell you that uh, if you chose martini, you're one of a growing number of people who are choosing cocktails. The Distilled Spirits Council of the United States, and gosh, doesn't that fa- sound like a fun council to be on? <laughs> says numbers show spirits surpassed beer for U.S. market share supremacy based on supplier revenues. Uh, Beth Nydick is uh, co-author of the cookbook Clean Cocktails, Righteous Recipes for the Modern Mixologist. Thank you so much for joining us. So, hey, guys, how you doing? Uh, we are doing well. We we haven't, uh, at least I haven't, I haven't drank anything before the show. Have you, Charles? <laughs> are you stone cold sober right now? Can I plead the fifth? All right, no, plead I the fifth on that. I had apple juice. Because he drank a fifth, I, I mean, know, for all we know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so why, why are people kind of gravitating away from beer and towards mixed drinks? I think it's really because they want to be creative. And during the lockdown, they really had time to understand what cocktails were all about. I think for a long time, cocktails, like young people thought cocktails were for the older set. And now cocktails are really accessible to anybody because on social media, you see all these gorgeous photos of amazing mixologists and bartenders making art and not just cocktails. Ah, now They want to be a part of it. Is that the key, though? Because, you know, it's hard to make beer look interesting on Instagram, mm-hmm. but, but, a, but you know, a, a well-made, colorful and interesting cocktail photographs well, right? Exactly. And they're accessible because you can look at a photograph on Instagram and then go to the market and buy some lime and some mint and make your own beautiful cocktail and then put it on your social media. So so what are the top ones? Margaritas are always the top. It's an easy drink. You can always make it look interesting and depending on kind of glass you have or a Bloody Mary, I think, is another one because you can put a jalapeno pepper or anything else on top of that as well. Um, Those more complex more intricate cocktails take a little bit more time, but they give you that little cachet to make you. And also, I think they make you feel a little sophisticated. I remember old fashions kind of making a comeback during uh, oh, the yeah. years that Mad Men was on the air because they drank a lot of old fashions. So so uh, TV culture kind of brought that drink back. And you're saying now it's more social media uh, bringing these drinks back. 
It was. It was influencers taking those drinks from the TV show and putting them on their social media and making a big deal about it. Because you can go on YouTube today and learn how to do that orange twist. So is there a technique, you know, uh, you know, when you have the salt around the, the rim of the glass? I never quite know what to do. I'm, I have to admit that. I, and I bet you there are a okay. lot of people who are exactly like that. They're just too embarrassed to admit it. I am not embarrassed to admit it. I don't know if I'm supposed to, like, lick the salt first. Am I supposed to keep the salt where it is and drink it along with the, with the cocktail? Do I save it for the end? What do I do with it? I have to tell you it's how you feel about it. I like to drink the cocktail with it because I feel like the salt is a part of the cocktail's ingredients. It's not just a garnish. The lime on the side or the jalapeno popper on the top of it isn't really a part of the drink. It's the garnish part of it. So when you have the cocktail with or without the salt, it tastes totally different. So I always think like, you know, just lick it and drink it. So let me ask you a personal question. Am I weird because yes, when yes. I, the answer is yes. I was going to say there no. Was, there was okay, going to be part going. two to that question, Charles. <laughs> oh, okay, go ahead. <laughs> uh, am I weird when I go to parties and somebody asks me for a, a, a drink and I say, you know, my favorite is a B-52. Does that make me strange? Strange? No. Maybe a certain generation? Okay. Yes. What, what is Tell a B-52? me it's an old one. What is a B-52? It's got some Grand Marnier, some yeah. Baileys, and some Kahlua in a mix. And you, and you can have it mm. in a shot glass where yeah. it's layered, or uh-huh. you can have it mixed with ice. Huh. So Not that I, I know anything about <laughs> What I find in cocktails today is really about health, because it's really being connected to that, because we were able to spend so much time focused on ourselves, that people want healthier cocktails. So that might be why that cocktail is not so popular right now, and I've it's never heard of not, it. It's not that healthy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it's unhealthy, I would say. I mean, I was going to say, I mean, I mean, let's be honest. Is there any such thing really as a healthy you know, cocktail? I mean, it's alcohol and <laughs> sugar if you're having a lot of sweet stuff in it. I mean, let's just admit it. it it's something that people drink because they want to and they want to either get drunk or they want to have a good time. But nobody drinks cocktails for their health, do they? They don't drink it for their health, but I always say this, and this is one of the reasons we wrote the book, is because if you're in the health industry or you're a healthy person, you don't want to go to the gym all week and then have two mojitos on a Saturday and ruin everything you've done all week. I don't know. That actually sounds pretty good. (laughs) I could live that way, yeah. (laughs) Well, I live live on the East Coast, guys, and I tell you that cocktail menus in New York City are a lot healthier. They They don't have so much... Oh yeah, they don't have this. They don't have as much simple syrup. They're using honey syrup, date syrup, coconut sugar. They're using different alternatives to make it healthier because their customers don't want to have the chemicals in their body or those straight sugars as much anymore. So wait a minute, but wait. They so, still want to drink. so you're saying you're claiming that the cocktails in New York City are healthier than ours in L.A. No, no, I just haven't been to LA in a little while. I don't know okay, what your menus look right. like. I'm assuming <laughs> they are like that too, but I, you know, I have to have my, I have to have, you know, the backup information. But when you go to a restaurant now, yeah. you'll see agave on the menu. Mm. You know, you don't usually see the, you see different nectar syrups, date syrups. You don't always see those simple sugars anymore. Also, because they can then charge more because it's a fancier cocktail. Ah, I see. Mm. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Beth Nidig, co-author of the uh, cookbook, Clean Cocktails, Righteous Recipes for the Modern Mixology. We should look into that. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. If we asked you to name a bird backpack song, some of you may not be able to answer off the top of your head, but 
If we asked you, have you ever heard the song Walk On By by Dionne Warwick? Or the song Raindrops Keep Falling On My Head? Or Do You Know The Way To San Jose? You'd probably say, yeah, I, everybody knows those songs. Do you know that? Oh, sorry. Uh, They were all written by Burt Bacharach, along with dozens and dozens of other catchy songs and melodies. The longtime songwriter and composer died at his home in L.A. at the age of 94. His work is, of course, going to live on maybe forever, however long forever is. Well, I guess forever by definition is forever. A pretty long time. That's a long time. And talking about long time, long time L.A. radio DJ Shotgun Tom Kelly is with us. He currently hosts the show on Sirius XM on 60s Gold on Channel 73. Shotgun, how you doing? You know, I'm doing fantastic, guys, and I want to congratulate you, Charles and Rob, for your afternoon show. Congratulations to you. Now, I got to tell you something. Yes. I'm on I'm on from four in the afternoon to nine o'clock. OK. Mm-hmm. And my wife, Linda, I said, hey, do you, hey, honey, did you hear what I did on, on my show? She goes, no, I was listening to uh, uh, Charles and Rob. On oh, oh, that's <laughs> so sweet. Well, well, we like her already. Uh, yes. Yes. Very much so. <laughs> But let us let us now turn to Burt Bacharach. I mean, here's yes. a guy who uh, I read this morning had mm-hmm. something like 70-plus, at 70-plus, top 40 hits. Oh, more than that. More than more. that. By the way, I don't, I don't want to correct you, but... Uh, no, no, by all means. I'm wrong about okay, so uh, many things. <laughs> well, Burt Bacharach was the composer. Hal David was... Uh, he wrote the lyrics. The lyrics, yes. And, uh, but they on one song... Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head from 1969. It was written for a Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Uh, an Oscar, of course, was won on that movie for Best Original Score. And on that one song, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, it was uh, both of them who wrote that song, Burt Bacharach and Hal David. So they got together. Usually songwriters have a partner, but that was the one that they both wrote together. What was the impact he had, Backrack, on pop music? And I would imagine it was more than most people would even realize. Oh, yeah. He went on, not only in the 60s, but uh, they went on into the uh, into the 70s with their songs. Uh, by the way, we just had a, a top 1,000 of the 60s on Sirius XM, Channel 73. And uh, I got to tell you, it seems like every other song that I played on that uh, top 1000 of the 60s was produced and written, composed by Burt Bacharach and Hal David. It was unbelievable. You know, it's interesting because just the other day I was having a conversation with my wife about uh, we heard yesterday uh, some elevator music version of it playing in a restaurant. And we and I mentioned that I, I was told once that yesterday by the Beatles was one of the most covered songs in modern music, that more artists have done versions of that. But then mm-hmm. we started uh, hearing about Burt Bacharach, and, and there's another artist who has written these these songs have become standards, even even more so in some cases than the Beatles. The songs are American standards that people can get known for by doing their versions of them, their their interpretations of them. Is that That's the case, and that's why Burt Bacharach's music is probably going to last for quite a long time, wouldn't you say? Oh, I would say. Now, on my show today, I have selected some songs. You guys uh, were looking at my log, I think, because uh, I'm going to play What the World Needs Now is Love by Jackie DeShannon from 1965. Jackie won a Grammy for that. Hmm. Also, I'm going to be playing uh, Do You Know the Way to San Jose from 1968. Dionne Warwick, she won her first Grammy for that. 
I'm uh, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, of course, from 69. And Walk On By, Dionne Warwick from 1965, another Grammy win. And I don't know if you guys knew about this, but Gene McDaniels and Tower of Strength was also composed by Burt Bacharach, written by Hal David. How about that? Do you know... Uh what the the method was that he composed his music and by that i mean you know there are songwriters who who uh, start the melody first and then the mm-hmm. lyricist comes along and 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 matches the words i think with elton john and 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 bernie right i think yes. i think with elton john he gets the words first and then he composes if i'm not wrong uh composes the music for the words do you, how did bert backrack work do you know well i think it uh, depended on uh, you know probably looked at the lyrics and then he probably came up because you know he was a composer he worked with the orchestra and uh probably uh you know came up uh you know with the uh with the song hey by the way this is very interesting you know bj thomas uh and raindrops keep falling on my head that took bj seven takes for that uh because uh bert expressed the fact that he didn't like the first six takes. Yeah. So take number seven was the hero. And uh, so sometimes, you know, in, in the studio, there's some dissatisfaction. That's why uh, B.J. Thomas had to go with, uh, you know, seven takes on that particular song. I found that very interesting. If you had to pick one song, which one would it be? Oh, man, you're that's a tough one. I love I, I love all of these. Um, mm. You know, I love uh, Do You Know the Way to San Jose. I always, uh, on my show on Sirius XM uh, every afternoon, I, you know, I always say, hey, do you know the way to San Jose? Don't forget <laughs> about the uh, Winchester, uh, you know, house of, of you know, whatever, you know, that Winchester house out there. Shaka, but, you, you, you've been at it for a long time and you've seen a lot of these people come and go. And I'm just curious, do you have a kind of your own theory about why do some songwriters you know, they have, they're like one hit wonders and you never uh-huh. hear from them again. And then you have that rare bird, uh, a Burt Bacharach, who, uh, whatever the number was, we've established it's much more than what I said, which was a 70 plus top 40 hits. Uh, why do some people just hit after hit after hit? Well, you know, these guys obviously were the go-to guys. I mean, when, when an artist wanted to have a hit record, uh, their management uh, said, well, let's get that, let's get the best writers. And back in the sixties, the best was Burt Bacharach and Hal David. And it just seems like everything that they touched turned to Grammy gold and, uh, and even the Oscar with, with uh, raindrops keep falling on my head. Uh, I, th- I, you know, it's, it just depends, you know, uh, uh, that's, that's a hard question to ask, but all I can tell you, is Burt Bacharach during the 60s and, as I said, going into the 70s was all always the go-to composer to uh, write the music. And, you know, I met him once. I didn't know the man, but I was at uh, a tribute to uh, Johnny Mathis over at the, the Beverly Hilton Hotel. And uh, there was Burt out in the lobby, and I got to shake his hand uh, before I went in. Uh, but... Uh, he was full of energy, it seemed like, that night. So, hmm. uh, you know. Well, uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to uh, talk with us. Uh, Shotgun Tom Kelly there.
And t- tell your wife to keep listening, Shotgun. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll tell Linda to keep listening. She's listening right now. So Hi, Linda. Good. How you doing? Not listening to me. <laughs> okay. Burt Backrack's work in the movie industry earned him two Oscars. One is Shotgun Tom Kelly just mentioned in our last segment was for the score of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and for the song Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. The other was in 1982 with his then-wife Carol Bayer Sager for the best that you can do, the theme from Arthur. Now, he was also a Tony-winning uh, Broadway composer for Promises, Promises. With us to talk about Bacharach's influence on music and movies is Jason Squire, professor emeritus at the USC School of Cinematic Arts and host of the Movie Business Podcast on Spotify. Thank you so much for joining us. So just uh, tell us right off the bat how much of an influence we're talking about. We're talking about a pretty major influence in the sound of songs in the movies, right? That's really true, and thank you. It's great to be with you. This, I mean, he has a lasting, vivid career in movie music. He changed the sound of movie music in the 1960s, uh, bringing in what really seemed like a hip London sound for some reason, and, but it was, you know, purely American and Burke Backrack with his uh, lyricist, Hal David. I mean, it's an extraordinary career when you play Raindrops uh, in the intro. I mean, you, you sort of get an uh, emotional reaction knowing now that the maestro is gone. And, and I, I think it's true, and, and, and tell me if you think it's not, but I do think it's true that, that when there are certain songs that are so... Uh, synonymous with a particular film that when you hear the the uh, song, you think of the movie. You may not remember almost anything else about the movie, but you do make that association. And and he wrote along with Hal David uh, so many of those kinds of songs in movies that you know if you, like I can't remember the plot of the movie Alfie, for example, that Michael Caine was one of Michael Caine's I believe first real big hits in the U.S. Anyway. I really can't tell you what the plot of that movie was anymore, but I know if I hear the, the theme song, I, I can kind of picture some scenes from that film, the same thing with some of the other Burt Backrack songs. Yes, I think that's true. Uh, with Alfie, certainly the title song sung by Dionne Warwick. And what's new Pussycat? You know, this is 1965. Tom Jones, a fabulous rendition of the theme song composed by Backrack for this uh, Woody Allen original screenplay comedy spoof. Another example. But I think that the, the real royalty in the, uh, in the output has got to be Butch Cassidy. I remember reading uh, William Goldman's original screenplay. And uh, when you come to the bicycle scene, we know today there's Paul Newman and Catherine Ross riding along, uh, teasing and having lots of fun. And William Goldman wrote, as a paragraph uh, instead of, uh, in the screenplay, something like, I'm paraphrasing, right? Here on this, in this scene, there's got to be some terrific music that is romantic and pretty as hell. And that's what Burt Backrack did. Does this happen quite as often uh, since Backrack was making a lot of songs for movies? I can't recall of too many movies after that period where a song is what stands out from the film. Well, that may be true, but I think we, we turn to Arthur, right? The uh, Christopher Cross, as, as you mentioned, as mentioned earlier, the Oscar winner. And uh, What the World Needs Now is Love were used in uh, Austin Powers, 1997. But you know, this is sort of uh, towards the end of his um, 
musical output because he was doing so many concerts. He was doing all these appearances and, uh, because he was a star. But that must be an incredibly difficult thing to do for a composer and, and, and a lyricist, in this case with Burt Backrek, uh, for the most part, Hal David, to come up with a theme song for a film that really captures the essence, right, of that of yeah. that film. Raindrops, you know, works for Butch Cassidy and, and Alfie, certainly for, for Alfie, uh, or for a movie that's kind of a, a sexy romp. Uh, the, the song kind of really captures that spirit. That can't be an easy thing to do. It just can't. That's right. That's right. And there's also a business aspect that makes it even more stressful. Uh, often, this type of decision to do a theme song and spend extra, spend extra lots of money on famous composer um, comes very late in the process, often in post-production, deep in post-production, when the mix is complete and the cut is mostly final and the money turns around and says, well, we've really got something here. Why don't we get a, uh, why don't we try to get a fabulous, you know, musical theme around the title of the movie to have uh, Younger moviegoers go out to the record stores and buy the singles. Let's push for that. And only if they're very positive about what they have before distribution will something like that happen. For the composers, it's real stressful because the clock is ticking. I think what's very interesting about we, as we talk about these songs, uh, when you mention Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, you could just say the title of the song, and I guarantee you about 70% of the people listening now hear the song oh, yeah. in their heads, yeah. and will probably hear it the rest of the day. Yes. Right. That's it. And start singing it themselves. It's a gift. He had a true gift, and he's given this to all of us uh, for posterity. All right, thank you so much. That is uh, Jason Squire, Professor Emeritus at the uh, USC School of Cinematic Arts, host of the Movie Business Podcast on Spotify. Yeah, Burt Bacharach, quite a, quite a career and the, the legacy he leaves behind. And yes, for whatever the definition of forever is, that music will be there forever. Exactly. It, it, it's, they are songs that will stand the test of time. This has been KNX In-Depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow.